0: Dear congregation, this morning you heard that beautiful confession of Ruth. Thy people shall be my people, and thy God shall be my God. Who is that God? That God that Ruth desired to have as her God. Who is that God who comes to us in his word? So that we would have that same desire of Ruth, this God to have as my God. This God is a God who reveals himself in his word as the triune God, the one God in three persons, three persons in one God. And by beginning with that confession of Ruth, we are reminded that this is not just an abstract doctrine. This isn't just some theorizing about God. This is about who the true and living God is as the God to know, to trust, to love, and to have as your God. It comes out very clearly also in the Heidelberg Catechism when it sets the doctrine of the Trinity after speaking of faith. What must we believe? We must believe in God the Father and in God the Son and in God the Holy Spirit. We must believe in this God. He is the object of faith. The the summary of what we are to believe is in the Apostles' Creed, and the summary of that summary is here, God the Father in our creation, God the Son in our redemption, God the Spirit and our sanctification. Reminding us, tonight it's not just about a doctrine. It's about the true and living God. And that as we, we come to that to listen to who he is, that it would be with that desire that we just had, we sang, expressed in song, I long his glory and power to behold, to know this God, and how blessed it is to have this God as my God. That's why our theme is Knowing the Triune God of Love, Knowing the Triune God of Love, Four points. First, the God of eternal love. Second, the Father, the fountain of love. Third, the Son, the display of love. And fourth, the Spirit, the bond of love. Knowing the triune God of love. First, the God of eternal love. Second, the Father, the fountain of love. Third, the Son, the display of love. And fourth, the Spirit, the bond of love. We read from John 17, didn't we? The prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. After he had been with the disciples in the upper room and had taught them on that night in which he would be betrayed, he then lifts up his eyes to heaven and he prays. Praise to his Father. And as we listen, we are shown a glimpse of God before the foundation of the world. Notice verse 5. O father, glorify thou me with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. And in verse 24, thou loved me before the foundation of the world. So before anything was created, before anything existed outside of God, when there was God and God alone, then there was Father and there was Son. And there was a love that the Father had to the Son before the foundation of the world. There were these more than one person in that divine being the one person is called here father and the other is called son and that shows that close relationship that there is between these two persons the father is the begetter and the son is the begotten. The Father is the fountain of life within the Trinity, and the very nature of a father is to be a life giver. And at the same time, it's not as if the Father was there and then at some point in eternity the Son came into being. No, the Father was always there, and the Son was always there. They had no birthday because the Son was always there begotten, and continually being begotten of the Father. And we ask, what about the Holy Spirit? The Lord Jesus, in the prayer here to his Father, does not speak of the Holy Spirit. But when he speaks to his disciples a couple chapters earlier, John 15, verse 26, he does. There he promises to send the Holy Spirit who proceedeth from the Father. So the Spirit who proceeds from the Father is the one Christ as the Son sends. That's why in the Belgic Confession, for example, we confess we believe and confess also that the Holy Spirit from eternity proceeds from the Father and the Son, and therefore neither is made, created, nor begotten, but proceedeth from both it was a third person of the Holy Trinity, of one and the same essence, majesty, and glory with the Father and the Son, and therefore is true and eternal God, as the Holy Scriptures teach us. What we, what we learn from this is that God, before creation, before anything existed else, was the God of life. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And what kind of life was within God's triune being? It was a life of love, of love. Verse 23, the, the Son confessed, thou hast loved me. And in verse 24, thou lovest me. Before the foundation of the world, in eternity, the Father was filled with love for the Son. The emphasis in Scripture is on the Father loving the Son, and the Son being the beloved of the Father. The life of the triune God was a life of love. That means all the delight of the Father was toward the Son, and the Son's delight was in the Father That's by the Holy Spirit. That's why Proverbs 8, the Lord Jesus can say, Before the mountains were settled, I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. What a love that is so holy, so pure, so constant, so infinite, the love of an infinite Father for an infinite Son in an infinite Holy Spirit, the love of a perfect Father for a perfect Son in a perfect Holy Spirit. What a love. Now, what does that love, what did it move the Father to do, or does it move the Father to do that love moves him to give his glory to his Son. Look at verse, four, verse 5. Glorify thou me with thine own self, with the glory which I had with thee before the world was. The Son had the Father's glory before anything was created. In fact, Hebrews 1 describes... Him this way as the brightness of His glory in the express image of His person. He's the very shining forth of the Father's glory. All the Father's glory shines in the Son and all that He is is to the glory of the Father. They share this infinite glory, this divine glory, this holiness, this bliss of delight, this purity of love with the Father and the Son. The Son could say, all that the Father has is mine, and all mine is the Father. There's no degrees of glory in the Trinity. It's not as if the Father is most glorious, and the Son has less glory, and this Holy Spirit has less glory. No, they have all share that equal glory as the three persons of the triune gods. This is who the triune God is, already in eternity the fullness of life, of love, of glory within himself. Is this the God that we know? So different from all the man-made gods that there are. There are man-made gods which are just forces, earth force, mother nature forces, But with forces, you can have no personal relationship. There are others who have many different gods. The Greeks had their hill full of gods. And today, there are still those who have many different gods. And often, those gods are at odds with each other, fighting each other. But this is the god of life and love and glory. There are religions with a single god, like Allah. The Quran says, say not three. In other words, Trinity, desist. It's better for you, Allah is only one God. Far be it from, from his glory that he should have a son. Allah is sufficient for a protector. But what does a Muslim miss? He misses a God of life and of love. He only has a solitary sovereign up in heaven who's distant and powerful. But how different is the God revealed in his word as a triune God of love, of life, and of glory? This God who is all sufficient in himself, and independent of anything outside of himself. And it makes us ask, why then did this God create the world? Anything outside of himself, if he's all sufficient in himself, if he didn't need anything, why did he create? We see in our second point the Father as the fountain of love. Creation is attributed especially to the Father. The Catechism speaks of the Father and our creation. The name God in Scripture may refer to the triune God, and at times it also has special emphasis on God the Father representing the triune God, especially when it speaks of, of, of the Lord Jesus in, in relation to God. And we find in the Word of God that this God, and the Father in particular, is the one who has brought all things into being, as a fountain of life begetting the Son within the Trinity, he is also the fountain of life who creates and who brings all things to being into being outside of his being. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Why? The Babylonian gods, according to the Babylonians, God created. Marduk created because he wanted servants. He wanted people to do things for him. He needed help. Have slaves. Others, Gnostics in the New Testament period, they say, the creation is something went wrong in that divine realm and it was thrown out of it and that became the creation. The creation is the refuse of that divine realm. It's evil. That's why it's evil. But the triune God did not need slaves to do things for him which he couldn't do. And the triune God certainly did not create, th- th- create this world as the refuse of the divine realm. Why did he create Revelation 4 says, Thou hast created all things for thy pleasure. They are and were created for his pleasure. And what is his pleasure? His pleasure is to be that fountain of life and of love and of glory. He did not create because he was unsatisfied. He created because he was so full that the fountain of his life and love and glory spilled over, can I say, out of his being and formed this creation that exists. The Father was the one who created. Is that not astounding? Do you not sense again how essential the Trinity is that the father who begot and eternally begets the son is also the one who can be the father who who brings other things into being? That he's not a solitary God who merely existed. There was no fountain of life. No, he's, he's a father who brings into being. And again, we ask, why did he create? Why did he create us? Is it not so that we would know him? Is that not what the Lord Jesus confesses here in in verse 3? This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God. We were created to have eternal life, and life is to know God, to have that relationship with God. Not that we would become infinite like God, but in, we would have this life of knowing and enjoying God, this God of love. That's why verse 26 is where Christ prays that the love wherewith thou hast loved me may be in them. It's astounding. But he's praying that that love that the Father has for the Son would be in those tiny little creatures which he has made. That's how great God is. His love moved him to also give his creatures a glory. Verse 22 speaks of the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them. The Father of glory created to give his glory to us as his image bearers his glory god created us for his pleasure to be to the praise of his glory as a fountain of life and love and glory to know this god and maybe if you're if you're thinking along carefully then then you say but I, I read in John 17 not about creation, but about redemption and about Christ's purpose of Christ coming here being to, to give these things as the Redeemer. And that's true. But the purpose of redemption must fit with the purpose of our original creation. Redemption is to bring us back to our original purpose of our creation. And that is to know God, which is eternal life. And knowing him, to love him, to trust him, to serve him. This is the life that Adam enjoyed. This is what he received from his creator and father. He lived to love and glorify and have fellowship with this God. Can a more beautiful state be imagined than that? Congregation, that is what highlights the insanity of our fall. The inexpressibly inexcusable nature of our fall. We turned our back on this Father. We threw away this life, this glory, this love. The Father who made us for himself to fill us with himself. And we rejected the fountain and we drank the poisoned cup of sin. And when we did so, we lost life. What we call life is not life if it's lived without the God of life. It's death. It's nothing but a continual death. Death in sin because we've cut that life bond with God. We've lost love. Everyone talks about love. Everyone wants love. But apart from the God of love, what do we have that we can call love? Love has been bent away from its proper object, and that is God. And when love is twisted away from its proper object, it only becomes harmful and destructive. We've lost glory. We stretched out ourselves to become as gods, to have more glory. But in doing so, we lost the glory of God. We instead have what is no glory. We can stretch out our hands to get things that make us great. Honor and riches and strength and popularity, but they're all the fake imitations and and idols that come in the place of that real glory. We have shame and dishonor and pollution. Does your life confirm that? Oh, Father, I am not filled with a fountain of thy life and love and glory. I am not full of thee to reflect all back to thee. The fountain of sin, of death, poison. Do you see where that comes from? Not from God, our Maker, God the Father, and our creation is all good. But our fall. We didn't rebel against a God who created us as slaves, but created us to be filled with Himself. Is that not something to humble us tonight? What have we done to this glorious, loving, triune God, this Father? And that raises a question, how can we be restored again? How can we enjoy this life again? How can we trust in this Father as a, and have this Father as a Father for us and not against us, who fills us with his love and not his wrath? And again, we can be so thankful that God is triune, and that means there is also God, the Son, as a display of that love. Our third point, the Son as a display of that love. God saw that man destroyed himself, cut through that bond with him, the God of life, sided with the devil, plunged himself into death, and couldn't restore himself. God saw man there. And he knew that if it depended on man to come back to him and make it right with him again, it would never happen. There would only be death as a final word. What did God do? God was moved from within himself. His heart of love for lost, fallen creatures who had ruined themselves moved him to send his son. He says it here, the Lord Jesus says it in verse 18, Thou hast sent me into the world. The Father sent him and anointed him with the Holy Spirit to come into this world. It's breathtaking that God the Son, who is the delight of the Father, would come into this tiny little onto this tiny little globe and among people who had fallen away from him and hate him. There he came. And he came as a brightness of God's glory, Hebrews 1 says, the express image of his person, and he revealed that glory on earth in a most astounding way. That's why he can pray in verse 4, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work that thou gavest me to do. The Son's work was to glorify God and reveal what God is like as that God of life and love and glory. Do you see it? Do you see this Son of God in the flesh as the glory of God in this world of dishonor and sin, always glorifying God with the whole of his being. Do you see him as the, the life in the midst of this world of, life, of death showing once again what true life is? is as a life from God, a life with God, a life to God. Do you see him as the one sent, as the beloved of God in the midst of a world of enmity? He remained the well-beloved of the Father as he walked about on this earth in the flesh. And here we see the Son of God come in the flesh as a real righteous Man, here is the marvel of the Trinity. If God were only one person, how could God send himself into this world and satisfy the justice of God? No, but God is triune, and so the Father could send the Son into this world To be a man, and as a man, to do that work that was required to, to secure salvation for those who had ruined themselves, like you and me. There's more. His work as a son glorifies God as a God who gives life and love and glory to those who have the opposite. 1 John 4 is where we read, In this was manifested the love of God towards us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The Son is the display of of one-sided love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us, John Marvels. This is a love that doesn't first ask, what will you give and what will you be and what will you do? No, this is a love that comes down into this world of enmity and sin and it displays itself as a sinner's love that saves such sinners and restores them back to God. He sent his son, it says, to be the propitiation for our sins. The Lord Jesus is praying, going back to John 17, the Lord Jesus is praying this prayer on the night in which he would be bound and he would be led on trial and be the eve of, which, of the day in which he would be crucified where he would bear the wrath of god almighty the wrath that fills god of the god of love when it meets sin and must destroy it he is about to hang in the darkness of god forsakenness and sink into death is this the display of the glory and of the love of god when the Lord Jesus prayed in verse 1, Glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee. Is this what he meant? That he would have to hang there in God forsakenness? Is that the display of the glory and love of God? Who here says tonight, Yes, that is the display. That is where I have found a matchless love. Because there I have found a substitute to take the place that I deserve, to take the death and the darkness and the wrath that I deserve forever. Yes, there is a display of the love and of the glory of God as He is crucified, because there He secured a salvation for fallen creatures the Son of God, and our redemption. You see it in the cross. What a God. What a Savior. There's none like him. And it's on the basis of what he has done upon the cross that he can pray, verse 2, Thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. That he should give eternal life. The Son of God died to give that eternal life. That's why he prays in verse five. Now, O Father, glorify Thou me with Thine own self, with the glory which I had with Thee before the world was. Yeah, that confidence that His death. And his utter desolation would not be the final word, but he would go through the cross, through the grave. He would rise again, and he would ascend, and he would be crowned with glory and honor. And that is who he is, and that is how, where he is today, he has that glory. And he displays it also as the mediator, as the Savior. Oh, my friend, you see him tonight. As a one so full of glory, so full of the love of God for unworthy sinners, so full of that life for those who deserve life, death, that there's none like him. And if hearing of him and hearing of what he has done makes you realize there's, there's none like him, and yet you can feel so blind. You don't see God's love displayed in his Son and in his work. And you wonder how to see it and how to enjoy it and how to be filled with this love and this life and this glory. And our final point is the Holy Spirit as a bond of love. The Son is a display of the gracious, loving glory of God. And how shall we know him? The Lord Jesus had said it shortly before in John 14. About the Holy Spirit, he shall glorify me, for he shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. He says, The Holy Spirit shall receive that glorious grace, that love, that life that is revealed in Christ, and he shall take it and he shall show it unto you so that you see it in him and so that you receive it from him and so that you share in that life, that love, that glory. Within the triune God, the Holy Spirit is that bond of love proceeding from the Father and coming from the, Holy, from the Son. And he, in turn, is the one who becomes the bond between God and sinners, so that you have this God as your God through Jesus Christ, his Son. May we not be so thankful Not only that the Father is the fountain and the Son is the display, but also that the Spirit is a bond of love. And that in the Spirit Christ comes and he works today. If that were not so, and it's blasphemy to think of it, but, but Christ would be the fullness. And everyone here below would remain empty. He would be life. And we would all remain death. He full of glory, and we would all remain nothing but shameful sinners. But by his Spirit, Christ comes. And what does he do? By his Spirit, he does those things that he prays for here in this high priestly prayer. First of all, he, he reveals himself and gives a knowledge of himself. Notice verse 6. I have manifested thy name unto the men which thou gavest me out of the world, and they have kept thy words. Verse 8, I have given given unto them the words which thou gavest me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came out from thee, and they have believed that thou didst send me. Is this not by the spirit that he spoke of chapters earlier as a spirit of truth who leads into the truth and into the knowledge of Christ, who opens blind eyes to see their own sin and misery apart from Christ and also to see the preciousness of Christ himself. He opens blind eyes to see the glory of God himself revealed in his Son. And in doing so, to draw to Christ in such a way that you cannot stay away. And through Christ, you are drawn to God, to know this God as your God. This is a blessed work of the Holy Spirit when the Catechism speaks of God the Holy Spirit and our sanctification. He comes. In a real way and works truly. Is this the grace that you know? Is this the work that you know? Is this the Spirit that you know? It's this knowledge of God that He works that transforms everything. Then you no longer think of God as one to be avoided. You no longer think of Him only as a judge that you would rather not meet. Or simply as a lawgiver who is very demanding, you come to know him as the God of life, of love, and of glory. And it's that knowledge that breaks your heart with sorrow over sin against such a God, that melts your heart in love to such a God. It stirs your heart with trust in such a God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It stirs your heart with wonder that this God is who he is and that he does what he says he does. And if the Spirit has revealed those things of Christ to you, the glory of this God to you, and your desire is to know him more. Oh, that I may know him, show me thy glory. And you realize you don't realize it enough, and you don't see it enough, but you know that everything else pales in comparison to the glory of this God. Again, what does the Holy Spirit do? Does he not fulfill the prayer of Christ in verse 17? Sanctify them through thy truth. Thy word is truth. Is he not the one through whom God sanctifies? He's the bond between Christ and a sinful people so that that grace of Christ is, is worked out in them. Is that not what sanctification is? So that your heart is renewed. So that instead of being bent in so many different directions, your heart becomes bent towards God's, his honor, his glory. And why does the spirit sanctify? It's because God has created us to be his image bearers. And God is determined to restore those image bearers again to again show something of his own glory. He has predestinated them to be conformed to the image of his Son, that image that is bright with love, a love that reaches out, Verse 18, as thou hast sent me into the world, even so have I sent them into the world. The Spirit separates God's people from the world, and yet he sends them into this world as sheep in the midst of wolves so that they would show something to the world of the glory of this God through his grace in them. It's a love that not only reaches out, but it's also a love that binds God's people together. The Father has given a people to his Son to reconcile to himself. That one gift of a people also means that they are bound together. Verse 21, that they all may be one. Verse 23, that they may be made perfect in one. Isn't that amazing? You have people from all different walks of life and all different backgrounds and all different social statuses according to the standards of the world. All different cultures, and yet they become one. Because there's only one Father, and only one Son, and only one Spirit who works. And as he works, he brings a people to be one. He says it there, that they all may be one, as thou, Father, art in me, and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. And again, we would never dare say this if it wasn't revealed in the word of God. But that oneness of the three persons of the Trinity is reflected in the oneness of his people. Do you see how rich that God is triune? How rich that is. It means God is a God of fellowship in oneness. And that's why this God also brings people into fellowship in oneness. What a God. And the result of it all is verse 13. That they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. My joy completed in them. The joy of the God of love is to show that love and cause it to reach fallen sinners and to gather them to himself to glorify his grace and his love. That's why verse 9 says, I am glorified in them. It's all about his glory. Congregation, maybe by this point you say, these things are so great. And they're so lofty and so high, so proud, profound. And then I look at myself and, and uh, who am I? Now, where do I fit? in the midst of all these grand and lofty realities. What a question for you. Do you say that as one who senses something of the boundless blessedness of this God, and that deep in your heart you realize there's nothing to be compared to belonging to this God? This God who's a God of life, of love, and of glory. And is that what stirs up that desire tonight to belong to this God, to know this God, to trust this God, to love this God, to worship this God who is so incomparable as the one God in three persons, the one who creates, the one who redeems, the one who sanctifies, what else can be compared to that having anything you can dream of instead of this God and you have only poisoned soap bubbles at best they pop in a moment and they're gone then we're the most miserable if we don't know and belong in a saving way to this God because then his infinite love is turned into wrath against, enmity against him. Most fearful. You say, how to know this God? How to have this God? Listen. In John 17, we have a prayer. A prayer of a perfect prayer of a perfect intercessor, Christ himself praying, Father, I pray. Father, I will. The first question isn't, what must I do? But what does Christ pray? He prays, for this to be reality he prays that many throughout this world would know this god whom to know is life eternal and the question is this do you think that that prayer that the christ has to his father will be refused by the father certainly not that means god is continuing to carry out his purposes of leading sinners in blindness and unbelief and deadness into that living union with Christ, to have fellowship with God and have him as their God. And what is faith? Faith is confidence. In this God, that he's able to perform what he has said. He's able to glorify his triune life and love and glory, even in a sinner like me. So that I confess before him tonight all that I lack and all that seems so beyond my reach. And say, oh God, but I'm not beyond thy reach. Here I am, show me thy glory. And he will, because he does, because he delights to, to the glory of his name. He does and he continues to do so. It can be such an encouragement. So for for you who know this God, have begun to know this God, Christ prays. Continues to pray. Continues to pray. That all his own. would Know him. Know God and Jesus Christ whom he has sent. And that prayer will be heard. Praise that God would sanctify. And God would make himself known. And those prayers will be heard. That's why. The life of faith is a life that trusts in this triune God to do what he has said, to glorify his life, his love, his glory in me. He will. He will fulfill. Ultimately, in a final way, that that final petition, Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which thou hast given me, for thou loved me before the foundation of the world. One day, all those who could no longer live without this triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, will see His glory in all its fullness. You think of Ruth so many years ago. She had that one desire. She may not have understood all that we heard tonight, but she knew one thing. There is nothing more blessed than to belong to this God. Thy God shall be my God. And now, where is Ruth? She is beholding the glory of this triune God and to do so forever and ever ever because God desires to have a people back to share in his glory his love and his life what a God congregation who can resist such a God isn't it reason to to fall down before such a God in adoration amen O triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the one true God, we pray unto thee and we confess that we are so finite and we are so limited and we are of yesterday, and what do we know? And thou art so great, so glorious, so full in thy love. what a wonder, O Lord, that Thou dost come to have dealings with people like us. That Thou dost come to those who are blind and show Thy glory, to those who are dead and give Thy life, to those who are in the filth of sin and glorify Thyself in them as a triune God. And that Thou dost continue to do so, because Thou art determined to do so, and Thou wilt hear the prayer of Thy Son, O Father, until it is complete. And so, O Lord, we pray, teach us to live by faith in thee, O Father, in thee, O Son, in thee, O Holy Spirit, trusting that thou wilt do what thou hast said. And, O Lord, if we still do not know thee and belong to thee in that saving way, come, we pray, do what thou hast said. And show the emptiness of all else. And fill us with that desire of Ruth. Thy people shall be my people and thy God. This God, this triune God, shall be my God. We pray to keep us further in this evening. And in this week that has begun with thy day, we thank thee that it could begin with thy day. And we pray to be our help and strength through this week. Keep us safe and from sin. Enable us in the tasks that we have to do. Receive our thanks, O God, and hear our prayer. Not for any worthiness in us, but for the sake of thy Son. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.